Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. With us today, this is a very interesting story. About a week or so ago, I was scrolling through Facebook, as I do on a daily basis, and I came across a comment from a guy who says he's a Trump supporter, and if people don't like it, they can debate him on it. So I said, well, I would like to have that debate. So I told him, well, you know, I wanted to agree to some facts first, because otherwise you just end up arguing about multiple points and, and you never actually get through the, the through the discussion and he agreed to him and now here he is and I'm, I'm happy to have him here Rocco Lucenti welcome to the Rational Egoist absolutely thank you so much for having me on and I look forward to the discussion yeah, so do I okay so before we get into the Trump stuff I thought it would be good if we just talked about your political philosophy what shapes your views in other words do you have one overarching standard by which then you judge issues or do you go issue by issue or maybe a mix of the two so what what is your political philosophy like if trump just disappeared today you'd still have political views so what are they like you could be a you know a brief synopsis best you can absolutely so i think that there's two important parts of that which is sort of where i'm coming from and where i am now and where i'm coming from is that i was frankly, a very libertarian Republican. I still consider myself a very libertarian Republican for a large part of my life. I was involved in the Ron Paul 2012 campaign. I supported Rand Paul in 2016. I know that libertarians have more of a mixed opinion on Rand Paul. Most of them, like Ron, more mixed on Rand. But I was involved in both uh, and definitely was supportive of the ideas of non-interventionism, civil liberties, and economic freedom. I think that certainly economic freedom was probably the primary driver for me during that time though uh you know lately and i would say really since i have become a christian in the last several years my political philosophy has really developed more into an individual rights based christian perspective which i would say comes from the scripture i would argue that the entirety of the western concept of human rights comes from the scripture. Romans talks of rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and rendering unto God that which is God's. And Galatians tells us to not be burdened by a yoke of slavery as Christ has set us free. I would say that these verses combine to tell us that we are not meant to be servants of man. We are meant to be servants of God and that we must be ready to reject it when man attempts to turn us into his servant through government. And that such attempts to turn man into servant of another man can only be put forth in defiance of our essential duty as men to serve God. So I believe the government should be as limited as possible and should also be limited exclusively to areas of a moral purview. And this is where I would uh, depart from a lot of libertarians who would say that you cannot legislate morality. I would argue that morality is the only thing that you can legislate and that what we should avoid is things like attempting to regulate commerce in a utilitarian manner. I uh, remember you saying something, I think it was on your Facebook or maybe on one of your podcasts about the Laffer curve and how Republicans want to use the Laffer curve to maximize revenue instead yes. of using. And I agree with the basic point. I do not believe in a utilitarian taxation system, which the primary purpose is simply to 
increased government revenue. So I think that utilitarian concepts like that should be avoided in government. We should not regulate the employment relationships, the pensions, the healthcare, or the similar free associations between individuals. We should take a moral approach to government and fund only those programs which are deployed in service of combating evil, whether that evil is you know, people using force against others or those evils are moral evils that you know you and I might disagree a little bit more on that would be more scripturally based. But I would say that government exists for that sole purpose, to combat evil and to stop those who would deploy it against others and in an ideal world. In my view, that's the only thing it would do. Okay, so with the individual rights, there's a couple of things you said that, that I want to talk about. You, you said individual rights. So do you mean individual rights in the Lockean sense of we have the right to life, liberty, and property? What is your understanding of the concept? Well, I would say individual rights in the sense that we all have the God-given rights as a function of being children of the king. And I don't know that... Uh, you know, really, I would say that my concept of rights from a philosophical perspective really comes a lot more from Rothbard than anybody else. I think that he really, you know, the Rothbardian, the sort of Miesian uh, approach to these topics informed a lot of my early thinking on this. But really, I think that now it comes down purely to the scripture and not so much to secular philosophers in my view. And certainly how we can apply those things I think that, you know, certainly Rothbard is a uh, hero of mine in that regard. And I think that some of the solutions that he would propose and that some of the other philosophers in these schools would propose are good for the problems that man, you know, faces outside of the moral realm. But as far as individual rights is concerned, ultimately, it comes from the scripture. It comes from this understanding that we have to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and not render unto him that which belongs to God. The moral purview of man is not under government and certainly not under a government like ours, which explicitly rejects the notion that such moral questions should even be involved in public policy. Okay, is, so, okay, yeah, well, sorry. here's, there's sort of... A there's a, a, a contradiction there and this is it if the government is should not be involved in morality like you just said for instance render unto caesar that that which is caesar's is in the scripture there's also in the scripture it says think uh think think not of the ways of this world but focus on the, the every word that comes out of the mouth of god something like that it's a long time since i read it but the basically the for the focus is the other world and like you said the, the the government has no business in the moral purview so then how could you justify them passing laws dictating morality by that i by the way let me i might be wrong so let, let me just say i i take that to mean like for instance premarital sex or or um homosexual sex or doing drugs things of that nature is that what you mean by passing laws about morality well, Michael, perhaps I was unclear and in the process of making my argument, I may have said something incorrect. So let me be clear. I believe yeah. that government should only have under their purview moral questions. Okay. I believe the more utilitarian questions, you know, such as the Laffer Curve example that I talked about, I think that that is what government should be purely out of the realm of that sort of thing. Yeah. And as far as the individual rights perspective, and you know, perhaps it changes your question a little bit, but I'll just say that uh, 
my view of the individual rights perspective in regards to that is that our rights are God-given mm -hmm. and that we do not have the rights to defy the will of God or to defy the word of God because ultimately all of our rights come from our creator who did not have to do any of this for us, who did wow. not have to give us those individual rights and who did not have to do uh, what he did by sending his son down to die for us on the cross. So you're, would you say, are you in favor of a theocracy? I am in favor of a, you know, I wouldn't say theocracy, no. And the reason why is because ultimately we have a constitution which is guaranteed certain uh, mechanisms and to simply whole cloth get rid of that would be dishonest. And I don't believe in lying. I think that you have to live up to the fundamental promises of your society. The rule of law is fundamental to our society. And to simply upend the rule of law in such a way would be a massive, massive problem. Now, what I would say is that Christianity has a place in public policy and people who are in public policy, who are people of faith, should not hide their faith, should not use their you know, this idea of separation of church and state as a reason for believing that their personal morality should be separate from the choices they make in policies. Uh -huh. Okay, so I think I've I've got it now. You're a constitutionalist. You think that we the Constitution is there and we ought to be going by it. That's the uh, supreme law of the land. And that's what the government is there to do to implement the Constitution and to be restrained by it. So I would say that I think that the Constitution, I'm a constitutionalist in the sense that I believe that rule of law is paramount. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Okay. And in order to change the laws that we care more about that might be impacted by some of these constitutional questions, you first must change the Constitution. I believe the fundamental problem with our legal system as it exists is that it is built on a basis of dishonesty. We have all of these court precedents, which plainly and simply interpret constitutional law in a way that is absurd. I interpret clauses, you know, in the right to bear arms. There, there are no regulatory clauses into the right to bear arms. It's absolute. There are no regulatory clauses into the freedom of speech. It is absolute. But instead of tackling those issues and how they impact public policy in our modern day, the courts have decided to lie about what the Constitution says. Yes. And that's a basis for the entire legal system to be based on lies. And then we wonder why we can't trust the criminal justice system. We wonder why we can't trust government when the entire thing is dishonest. This is what happens. So I'm a constitutionalist, not in the sense that I believe that the Constitution is some holy document like the Bible is. Yeah. I'm a constitutionalist in the sense that I understand that if we're not honest about the laws that govern our country and we don't adhere to them honestly, the entire thing comes apart. I, I'm with you on that. Okay, so now I think we're in, in a position where we can get to Trump. So you are a Christian and a constitutionalist. I I myself, I think, I, I think the Constitution is a very flawed document. However, the way to get around that is by changing it through amendment, not to reading my personal opinions into it and in, in making them the law of the land. So I think we're, yeah. we're, so where I think together in that I'm not a Christian, but I find it interesting that as a Christian and a constitutionalist that you would support Donald Trump. 
because he, to me, clearly is neither a Christian nor a constitutionalist. Now, let me just say, if you're if you're saying by I support Donald Trump that the the choices that are before us are so awful from every direction that I have to pick somebody and he seems to be the less of two evils. Well, I mean, I disagree with that approach, but a lot of my friends, that's what they do. And I understand it's a tough situation to be in. You want to be civilly engaged. But the post that you put out there made led me to believe that you are an ardent Trump supporter. So are you an ardent Trump supporter or are you someone that votes to Trump for Trump rather because lack of better options? I would say that the answer is both. I am an ardent Trump supporter because in an era of my, I am 30 years old. In my lifetime leading up to Donald Trump, we have had exclusively on an A through F scale, F grade presidents. And Donald Trump, in my view, was, you know, at least like a C minus or a C, which is not incredible, but it is leaps and bounds in improvement. And he was the first president who actually attempted to do things to make something better, whereas all the other presidents simply served a cabal of elites who did not have my best interests in mind, who did not have the best interests of the people around me in mind. And who allowed communities like mine to die out in the way that they are right now? So, I think that most—I don't know about presidents. I don't—I don't like to ascribe motive to them because it, it's so multi-determined. It's very difficult to tell. But I don't think most liberals, for instance, are like let's just hurt people and destroy people. I think they believe that the policies that they are supporting and they want enacted are actually going to help people. I think they're mistaken badly. And there might be some dishonesty that's leading to those conclusions. I ultimately don't know. I just know the conclusions are are wrong, right? So you said that Trump, you'd give him a C minus compared to who were the other presidents in your that you're talking about? I'm guessing you mean W and uh, Obama. And also Clinton and Bush, H.W. Bush. H.W. Bush, too. Okay. At the very, very end of him. Okay. So what about, you said Donald Trump is trying to do good things. What about his policies make him, both that he was able to implement and not implement, right? His philosophy, let's say, makes him superior in your mind to an H.W. Bush or Clinton or any of the others you mentioned. Yeah. So I think there's a whole bunch of things. And I'll start with some of the economic issues. The Trump tax cuts, uh, they totaled out over a 10-year period to $2.3 trillion, which was the largest tax cut in American history on a pure dollar-by-dollar amount. Now, I don't know what the inflation-adjusted numbers are, but on a pure dollar-by-dollar amount, it was the largest in American history. And that is a huge libertarian win. It's a huge win for uh, economic freedom, and it takes more money out of the government, puts it back into the economy. There were... 321 deregulatory acts by the Trump administration that the Brookings Institute cataloged, yeah. which the Trump administration claims cut nearly $200 billion in compliance costs. The American Action Forum put that at more like $110 billion. So those were, again, major savings for real people in the economy who don't have to comply. I think those are good things. I'm with you. Those are good things. I don't disagree. Yeah. And uh, I'll just do a couple more on the economy and then maybe we can stop on there and uh, you know just discuss that point. But he, in his first year, 
cut 3.7 trillion, again, over a 10 year period in domestic spending, the largest such cuts in the modern era. Now, spending hawks will point out, and they're correct, that he put all that back into military spending. I don't agree with that point. So the overall budget in that regard did not go down, but it is true. Hold on a second. Are you saying that he cut spending or did he cut the growth of spending? Because when politicians talk, they're real slippery. And what they normally mean when they say cut spending is they cut the growth. So if it's supposed to grow by 4%, they cut it to 2%. You know, it's a fair point. And it probably is a cut in the rate of growth, given how the unfunded liabilities are, are going. The answer is, I don't know, but that is a good point. And I remember during the sequester battle, we kept talking about, oh, we're going to have cuts and cuts. No, we were talking about cuts to the rate of growth of government. So- no, it's a fair point, Michael, and I take your point there. Okay. But uh, I, and I, th I think that in either case, the attempt to even slow that rate of growth, if that is in fact the case, is an important thing. And something oh, it's better than not doing it. It has sure. not done. So uh, just one last point that I would point out here, and Trump really pushed this a lot uh, on the campaign trail in 2020, which is that Incomes hit a record high and poverty hit a record low in 2019. And though presidents are not singularly responsible for the economy, it is worth pointing out that the first three years of the Trump economy before the COVID pandemic hit were a very, very good time for us in comparison to what we had seen prior under Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Now, some would say that that was because we were still living off of some of our largesses, not having address some of our fundamental issues with spending and debt. And I would agree with a lot of that. But when we talk about the situation in comparison to prior presidents, yep. first time that things were actually starting to get better. The first three years of Obama, we had trillion dollar deficits. The first three years of Trump, he kept it under a trillion. Now he's still way too high, but kept it under a trillion. He still spent way too much. Way now, too much. Now, okay. So the first thing, under Clinton, the economy grew at 4%. Under Trump, it grew at 2.5%. I'm not a fan of Clinton. I don't think he had good policies. Like you said, it, the president isn't the sole resp person responsible for the way an economy goes. But nonetheless, people do tend to rate it that way. And if we're going to say it about Trump, well, it grew, then you have to do it for Clinton. So Clinton had far more robust growth than Trump did. The last three months of Obama's tenure, the economy grew at 2.3%. Over Trump's first three years, it grew at 2.5%. It's hardly a large improvement. The economy was already heading in that direction. Unemployment fell faster under Obama after the recession, but he inherited the recession. You can't blame that on him any more than you could blame COVID on Trump. Unemployment rate fell faster under Obama than it did under Trump. And the bottom line is when it comes to deficits, whether it's domestic spending or, or spending on the military, he's still vastly, you know, he still kept spending money and beyond what was being taken in. I support the tax cuts. I support the deregulation. But the problem is you have to ask, is that offset by the other things he's doing? He refused to touch entitlements. And if you're not going to touch entitlements, you're not going to do anything to the deficit, right? The tariffs, first of all, the idea that the importing country that we're trading with pays the tariffs is false. The people that pay the tariffs are the businesses that are buying the products. These are American companies. If they have to pay a tariff on those products, what ends up happening is domestic prices rise in the, with those products. So it's American citizens that ultimately are paying more money. If you've got yourself 10 economists, I'd be shocked if one of them was in favor of tariffs. They're almost universal in recognizing 
that tariffs are a bad idea, free trade is a good idea, that it enriches both na- uh, both nations. This goes back to 1776 with Adam Smith when he demolished the idea of what at the time it was called mercantilism, right? So uh, briefly, and you may know this, but for anybody in the audience who doesn't, mercantilists believed that the wealth of a country was determined by the amount of gold that they had in the country, not goods and services. So if gold, if you're getting imports, gold is flowing out of the country, goods and services flowing in, the gold leaving makes them poor. Of course, gold is just a means of exchange, just like money is. So you're actually, to have a surplus of imports over exports, as Milton Friedman actually pointed out, we we lose when we export stuff. We're not actually gaining stuff. We're gaining when we have imports because we have more goods coming in. So he's fundamentally wrong about the economic effects of tariffs. And beyond that, they're a violation of the very rights that you were talking about before, because you're initiating force against people who have not started it against you. You're forcing people to do things that you want them to do. Now, all politicians do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not all, I shouldn't say all, most do that. So he's not unique. All I'm saying is that what, what boggles my mind is the sort of devotion that people have to him. And by the way, as we talked about his tariffs, they didn't even, they didn't give us a balance of payments. The the trade deficit grew under Trump all four years. So the tariffs didn't even achieve the results that he said they were going to achieve. So on, on the economy, sure, the deregulation and the tax cuts are great, but are they offset by the deficit spending and the, the tariffs he put on the economy? And plus the you know threatening businesses, telling businesses, you better not fire people or I'm going to put tariffs on the, the, the products you're buying or putting pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates low, which puts more money in the economy, leading to inflation. So I, I'm kind of thinking that... It, it's maybe a wash and maybe worse than a wash because he's not advocating capitalism, but some people think he is. Well, Michael, I guess what I would say is a couple of points. And I think that the Obama economy is an important place to start because what we saw under Barack Obama was actually the most anemic economic growth rates that we had since Jimmy Carter at that point. And when Donald Trump came in, he came in and got higher growth rates. You point out that the combined growth rate in the first three years was two and a half percent, but he did in 2018 bring it up to 2.9%, which was the highest since 2005. And the point uh, that I would make is that he did that in an environment where interest rates tripled. The federal fund rate went from 0.65 to 1.58% between the day he took office in February 2020, which was the last month before the COVID pandemic cuts and interest rates started coming. So he did his economic growth rate during a raising interest rate environment where Barack Obama did it in an environment where the Federal Reserve was constantly slashing the rate to nearly zero. It was at near zero, the federal funds rate for almost his entire presidency. So we have to take the economic growth rates in that context, in the context of the fact that Trump helped stabilize the fundamental nature of our economy by letting the Federal Reserve keep that federal funds rate up little by little. Well, hold on. He didn't let them. He told them not to. He didn't. He did tell them not to. You're right. Yeah. So he, he was he was. Yeah, he, he created the stability that he was able to create with some of his policies allowed them to do so without compromising the growth. Because well, under Reagan, the, the economy grew at 3.5% and they raised interest rates far more than they did under Trump. 
Oh, it's absolutely the case. And you know what? We have had a much worse economy since September of 2001 than we had at any point before that. It's just the reality of when you look at the uh, data on this, we have never really had a good economy in the last 20, 25 sure. years. In the 80s and 90s, we had 20 years of a near economic golden era. I absolutely take your point. About so, Clinton, about but if it. we're going to, this is my my problem. Trump says coming into office that he's going to achieve growth rates of four, five, six. I think he even said 7%. That's what he promised, right? He gets 2.5. He says, we've got the best economy in the history of the world. It's a flat out lie. It's just not true. Any president during any time can always point to ancillary factors like you just did. You said, well, the federal, the, the interest rate was raised under Trump. I didn't look into that. I don't know how much it was raised. I'll take your word for it. But the point is that any president can do that, which is why it's a, it, it's a mistake to put it all on a president anyway. But when you're the president and you say that you're going to get all the parts that are moving to move in sync with each other and then fail to do it, you're responsible. It's just like Obama. Obama, when he was coming into office, said, I'm going to be able to work with everybody, right? Then he couldn't do it. He said, but then he blamed Republicans. They won't work with me. Well, hold on. You said you were the guy that could get them to work with you. Now they're not. Then that's a failure on Obama's part. It's a failure on Trump's part. So- while I understand your point about the interest rates, Obama was facing problems too with the economy when he inherited, when he inherited you know, the greatest recession since the Great Depression. But nonetheless, you take for what it is. And Trump got 2.5 over three years. And if you really factor in the whole thing, I mean, if you factor in COVID, which while not his fault, he was in favor of lockdowns at the beginning. He was in favor of the deficit spending, but ultimately his economy was 0.95%, which is horrible for, for a four-year period. But we'll take him at his three because I don't want to blame him for COVID. But my only point is 2.5 is not a significant increase over 2.3. And you, we can come and say, well, it was this, it was this, it was this. He's the president. He has to deal with it just like Obama was the president and he had to deal with what he had to deal with. Well, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately, when you look at the situation that he inherited, he had a government who was weaponized against him from the word go. And that is a factor that is really under, you know, not discussed enough in terms of legacy of the Trump presidency is that his policy. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Yeah, yeah. I want to I, I want to just say something about that. You're I, I don't disagree. My problem with that is that during the debates, Trump's over and over again, he said, I'm the deal maker. I know how to make deals. When Ted Cruz criticized Mitch McConnell, Ted uh, uh, Trump says, you got to conjole these people. You got to know how to deal with them. You, he said he was the deal maker. He knew how to do it. He knew, knew how to reach across the aisle. So then if it's true that he was blunted by the, the forces you're talking about, well, then he's the fault of it because he woefully underestimated that. Like, well, I mean, like all the people that have turned on him, for instance, all the cabinet members that he had, all the administration members that have come out against him since, and people say, well, they're turncoats. Okay, maybe they are. But he said he would pick the best people. So then if you don't pick the best people, then you're responsible for that. The question of the debate ultimately is just to bring it back is just whether or not to support Donald Trump in 2024. The question is not whether or not his presidency was perfect. The question was not whether or not he made mistakes, because frankly, there was a point at which I was considering Ron DeSantis because I thought that he probably handled some of the COVID stuff a little bit better, though 
not really, in my view, better enough that ultimately it's going to swing me in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I think that we have to remember that ultimately it is a collection of choices. And the other people like Barack Obama who were in government who did not face these sorts of issues, that was because they were a part of the system that is weaponized against us. Donald Trump is the first person to ever not be a part of that system. So he ran into unprecedented opposition. He ran into two impeachments. He ran into being the first president, former president ever to be arrested. On that's not true. Essentially, that, that's not true. Charges. That's he not true. Arrested before. Ulysses S. Grant was arrested while he was president. And, and Nixon would have been arrested if he weren't pardoned by Ford. They were coming to get him. And uh, uh, plenty of plenty of politicians have been arrested. I know they're not presidents, but I'm just saying. Yeah, but Grant was arrested for being drunk on a horse, wasn't he? Still arrested. You said they've yeah, never no, been arrested. Just, you said I they've never been arrested. Now, I mean, yeah. we could say, well, they were never, you know, uh, harassed by the FBI, but there was no right. FBI for, a, you know, a long portion of the country. We do have a vice president that committed a murder. I mean, there's been a, there, there's been a lot of things. And by the way, I'm not taken away from the opposition to Trump. All I'm saying is that, for, first of all, a lot of that is self-inflicted because he just won't shut his mouth. But another part of it is he promised that he could deal with these things. And now what you just said is you went to the lesser of two evils approach, which I don't have a beef with that. I don't. If you say, look, I, there's no good options. This is the best. Eh, okay. I don't have a beef with that. My beef is with, and I don't even want to use the word beef. My disagreement is with the idea that this guy had a great first presidency and is going to save the country in the future because the facts just don't support that. So you said, but you said you wanted to move on from the economy and we, we've got about 15 more minutes. So I want you to be able to get in everything that you want to get in. I don't want to just Bogart, unless if you really have something to say on the economy, I'm not trying to stifle you, you yeah, say no it, problem. but, I, but I, I want you to be able to get in your other stuff as well. I think there's just one really important thing I'd like to get in while we're on this topic, okay. which is the idea that it was, you know, in self-inflicted because he wouldn't shut his mouth. I don't think that that is what is the case at all. I think that when you look at what Andrew McCabe said to CBS 60 Minutes, that they started the investigation into Trump and Russia because his foreign policy stance toward Russia was not sufficiently aggressive. He said that mm -hmm. right on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. So the reality, I would say, is that Trump was a threat to permanent Washington, and that was why they did these things to him. Trump is the only candidate in the race right now where they plan to purge 50,000-plus civil service agents of the rogue bureaucrats, which make up permanent Washington. He was the first president since Carter to not get America involved in any new wars. He was the first president to- Well, he did bomb Syria. He did, but that was already something that Obama was doing. But he, did, but he did it, and he said he wouldn't, but then he did it and said he did it because he felt bad. And he also bombed Iraq to kill uh, Soleimani. I mean, if, for, from our perspective, we say, that, oh, there's no wars. But I promise you, the people that are getting bombed, to them, they're at war. Both of those were continuations of prior Whatever action. they were, he did Soleimani it. He didn't have to do it. The Soleimani incident, and I would actually say it was a great example of Trump's restraint because when they launched those missiles at the military base that didn't land anywhere near it, most presidents would have taken that opportunity to escalate, to launch a full-scale war, to make another $100 billion to Raytheon. Donald Trump didn't do that. He decided, you know what, you didn't hit us. That's fine. We're just going to move on. And we Fair didn't point. Get Fair point. I was only quibbling with the idea that he didn't get us into any wars. Understood. And, uh, no, I, and 
any new wars is what I said. Okay, and, okay, you're right. Yeah. You did, you did, you did say that, but, but you're, uh, you're right. I'm not gonna. I, you, 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 you got a good point there. Okay, so, but do, when I was saying, but just to let you tell you what I was talking type of thing I was talking about during the campaign, he says, "Thank you, uh, WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. They they released this in it, and then he says, Russia, if you have any more information on Hillary, go get it. That's the type Martin of Sanj. yeah. Oh, I'm I'm all for it. I, I'm listen, I. I, I'm with Assange, Edward Snowden, but I'm just saying that Trump's mouth hasn't helped him, hasn't served him well th through these times. But so you, you, we went through the economy. So what are the other um, sort of reasons that inspire you to favor Trump? Yeah, so I think I just went through some of the foreign policy type stuff right there, and that is definitely a part of it. Uh, he opened the Taliban negotiation, which ultimately led to the Afghanistan withdrawal. He, you know, was negotiating with Iran and didn't at least start a new war with them. So, yeah, I'm not saying that the thing with Iran went great. His obviously his rhetoric toward them was very hostile, but we didn't start a new war with them. And I think that's important. I think it's also important that he brokered peace deals between Israel and four Arab nations who they traditionally had either hostile or sort of shaky relationships with. And he vocally denounces neocons, globalists, the military-industrial complex. He's done so by name. Well, hold on. He so, said that. You had me. I was with you for a while because I actually like his non-interventionist stance, even though he has violated. I, I I do like it. I don't like all his bluster towards other countries and all that stuff, and I don't like the bombings. But I do like his non-intervention stuff. But to say he's against the military-industrial complex after he funded it more than anybody else in history, it, that's kind of empty. Mike, what I said was vocally denounces. And but, yeah, but what vocally uh, means nothing. His actions are he funded it. He went on Steve Hill's show on Fox News, and he said there is a military-industrial complex, and they just want war. And he said that as the president of the United States. I agree with you that he has not been perfect in this regard, but he said this as the president of the United States, and I think that's a very important thing. He was the first guy since Eisenhower to really do that from the presidency, and I think that's uh, valuable. Okay. And I think that helped to turn the Republican voter base into one which is fundamentally much more skeptical as it relates to interventionism. I'm sure you remember the Republican Party pre-Trump of the Iraq War era. Sure. And it was a very rah-rah interventionist party. I remember Ron Paul being booed on the Republican debate stage for making points against the Iraq War. And this is such a different party now. And that's in large part because of Donald Trump. And that's going to mean that it's going to be harder to launch wars in the future, which will save lives. And uh, there's just two more points on social issues that I would make. Number one, I could not, as a Christian, not mention Roe versus Wade. Okay. Justices who overturned Roe v. Wade. I'm sure that I need say no more, right? Just from my perspective. So I'll move on from that. I like them on the, listen, I like them on the judges. I, I'm yeah. not, you don't, you don't, you won't get an argument with, with me on that. What, and I know that you'll be with me then on the New York concealed carry law, which the judges. Yeah. Down. Three, three areas. I agree with him on that. I think he did a good job. Taxes, deregulation judges. You're not going to get a, a beef with me about those things. I just don't see how that over or, or outweighs 
all the downsides of him. And, and what I mean by that is not the guy who's just going to go vote for him. I have to say this over and over again. I'm not criticizing your average guy who's in a, a, a shitty situation and feels he has to vote for somebody and votes for him. Nor, by the way, would I hate the guy if he went and voted the other way, if he just feels like he's in a horrible situation. There's tough choices to make, but it's the ardent support for Trump that, I, that I'm talking about. And it, when, when you talk about that, his bad, his bads to me far outweigh his goods. So, what about immigration? I, I want to before we we go. I want to get your take on Trump's immigration position. Well, I believe that immigration is something that needs to be more regulated and curbed, and that frankly, the Democratic Party is using immigration. If you look at the opinion polling as a mechanism for bringing more voters of their party into the country, and I don't believe. The immigration is a bad thing. My girlfriend is from Nigeria. She immigrated here seven months ago. I'm not anti-immigration. I am against using immigration as a method of socially engineering this country in a manner of rigging a system which is way too dependent and able at this point to have people use government to steal from each other. As long as you have government where people are able to steal from each other, the attempts at social engineering of this sort are a fundamental threat to part of the population. And that mm -hmm. is the ethos that Donald Trump was speaking to when he said build the wall, that Donald Trump was speaking to when he proposed these immigration policies. So I support them so long as we still have a porous border, which one party is using in a very cynical manner. Okay, so two things. One, I agree that the, what the Democrats do or what anybody does to to I'm opposed to social welfare programs, period, whether they be for citizens or non-citizens. So we they ought not to be able to cross the border and be given social welfare, right? But here's the thing. As a constitutionalist, I challenge you. Show me where in the federal constitution the federal government is authorized to pass laws to keep people out of the country. Where are they authorized to be involved in immigration at all? Congressional powers, Article 1, Section 8. Nowhere in there is there a power granted to them to pass immigration laws. If you read the Constitutional Convention debates, they, they weren't talking about keeping people out of the country. One guy, I think, brought it up. And when he did, he was chastised vehemently by his compatriots. So and beside that, the history of the country is letting immigrants in. We didn't really get robust immigration laws till much later on. And I just had Richard Epstein on the other day who believes in a prescriptive constitution, which means that it can change over time. I don't believe that. But he conceded to me that under an originalist perspective, which I assume that that's where you are, that's what the Trump appointees say they are, Congress has no business passing immigration laws. We, that's not to say that they're not, I'm not debating the efficacy of the laws or the desirability of them. None of that. What I'm saying is the constitution doesn't allow it. Well, what I would say is that naturalization law gives Congress the power to regulate what makes one a citizen or not. That's true. That's, that's true. But it doesn't you know, give them the right to keep people out of the country. That's true. It gives them power well, to decide who's another, a citizen. Well, I think this is yet another case where we had run into this problem that we has been, you know, going back to Marbury versus Madison that I referenced at the beginning of the conversation, which is that rather than taking an honest look at constitutional law and changing things accordingly, our courts have decided to interpret things into the meaning of the constitution that aren't in fact there. 
So yes. you know, I believe certain immigration ways, laws are one of them. Why? But naturalization and citizenship laws not. One That's of true. And they have the right. If we didn't have those problems with the naturalization and citizenship issues, the voting things that I'm talking about wouldn't be present. Well, I'm not talking. I'm not making it economic argument here no no, no i i wasn't i don't think you are naturalization but, argument but, but both parties both parties the republicans more so than democrats but both parties and trump extremely want to keep illegal illegal immigrants from coming across that border and all i'm saying is they have no authority granted them by the constitution to do so they have a power over naturalization the founders knew that pe they wanted people to come here. So they were not going to put in a document that, to, to restrict people coming in, but they gave them the power over naturalization because they were af afraid that foreign agents would run for elective office, right. that they would come here, be given citizenship, run for elective office, and then infiltrate. So they do have the power over naturalization, but not over immigration. So as a strict constitutionalist, you ought not support Trump on that. Well, what I support is the reality of the situation, which is that the immigration system is being used and weaponized against one part of the country in order to drown out our voices. And at this point in America, where government is being weaponized against us like never before, though I believe in rule of law, though I believe in the Constitution, the Constitution is also not a suicide pact when the social compact has been fundamentally broken. So as long as we are in this system- That's a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope. Because anybody can say that. Anyone can say that. We are in a slippery slope on the other end where the Republicans will cling to, you know, some uh, interpretation of the 12th Amendment in order to justify not challenging the election. While the Democrats will take every single thing that they can in terms of ballot access things, in terms of drop boxes, in terms of mail-in voting, to justify essentially cheating their way to winning an election, and you know, yeah, yes, I have one. I have a question for you about that before we go. Not about the election, yeah. but what you just said. Yeah. My personal belief, and I believe it strongly, is that the way to combat the type of stuff you're talking about is with truth. Yeah, I agree. That, that you tell the truth, that you stick to the truth with a, a, a rock solid integrity that is unbreakable. Absolutely, that's the way to win. Not by compromising your principles, not by turning away from the Constitution and saying, well, the other party does it too. You know what I mean? And that that's that's my position on that. Rocco, I just want to thank you. You've been a wonderful guest. You've been an absolute gentleman, very respectful. Uh, it's been a great discussion with you. I'm, I'm happy I took you up on your challenge because I think it's been a very nice discussion. And I'll see you on Facebook. For now, this is The Rational Egoist. Remember, like, share, subscribe. And hopefully I'll see you next time.